We're going to look this morning at Mark chapter 12 in the series on questions people ask Jesus. If you have your Bible, we're in uh, chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. I'm going to read the text, and then I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, and if you want to respond to that, you're welcome to. I think a good response would be praise be to Christ. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. So I texted a bunch of teachers and one attorney, for good measure, and asked if there are bad questions. And I was thinking through my own teachers growing up and how some of them loved to say that, that there are no bad questions, and others just never brought it up. And uh, the... (laughs) I got a range of responses. And I think the reason we get a range of responses is, Phil's, ooh, I also emailed a tech person. So there really was a balance to this. Um, but there's a range of opinions, right, on if there are good questions. Perhaps a bad question is one that's already been answered. Parents, you get an amen? No? Okay. And I, this is such an interesting text to me because... It's obvious from the text, the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection, so they're asking Jesus about something that they don't believe in. And yet, because of their question, which is at least a little bit, um, we'll just say problematic, we learn things that we wouldn't have otherwise known from their question, which makes it delightful. And it's delightful because Jesus answered it. Whether or not there are good or bad questions, philosophically, I leave you to think about in all the free time that you don't have, But Jesus answered the questions that people asked him. Now, this question is theoretical. It's exaggerated. So they're taking something they don't believe in, setting it into a place they don't believe exists when humans are resurrected from the dead because of Jesus' return. And then they're asking him questions. Uh, This line of teaching from the Old Testament explains the book of Ruth. It happens in uh, the book of Genesis also. There's some interaction with it. And I wonder about your questions. I wonder all of the questions of the people in the room. So I've been doing some form of ministry for about 24 years, and so people have been asking me questions about God, Jesus, and the Bible all that time. And I'm fascinated. Just an adjective here or an adverb there, a question a little shorter than I've ever heard of it, or a little longer, typically is unique. I think you have unique questions. And I want to talk about our questions, and then I want to talk about the questions that the Bible addresses. And with our questions, I wonder what would happen if, even if we categorized it, not just what questions do you have, what questions do you have about the complementary role between science and faith? 
and you would write down a few questions. Some of you, that's a very interesting subject. For some of you, it's not. Some, and there are all sorts of stances in the room. We have questions. And some of our questions are overly theoretical for some, right? You get a philosopher and an engineer, and they're talking about their questions, and they're going to frustrate each other on a bad day. None of you engineers or philosophers, but others. Some of our engineers do not always understand things that I'm saying. And I feel bad for them, because usually it's because I was unclear. Anyway, we ask questions, and my hope is that as we approach the questions people ask Jesus, we find our own questions in them. Now, the problem, I think, with the Sadducees is not only they're asking Jesus about something they don't believe in, I don't think they're asking him very humbly. And the reason I think that is because there are a lot of humble ways to ask this question, right? Like, Jesus, we don't believe in the resurrection, but you do. Would you mind explaining it? Jesus, we're not, really, we're not really seeing that in the text, the resurrection. We're more fans of the first five books of the Old Testament, not the other ones. But you're a fan, clearly. Say more words about that. There are a lot of humble ways to ask this question. The other reason I think they weren't very humble about it is Jesus tells them they're wrong and that they don't know the power of, uh, they don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And he says they're quite wrong, which from Jesus, love incarnate, is a pretty strong pushback. But I want you to engage your questions. I want us to engage our questions. If you have no questions about God or the scriptures or the life of faith, I wonder if your faith is alive and active and transforming you as the gospel and the Holy Spirit inevitably, unstoppably do in the believer's life. So I'm glad you have questions. Jesus answered them. He answered a theoretical, exaggerated question, and because of that, we know more about the resurrection. So we become like angels. I wish this wasn't important to say, except that every year of my life, I've heard someone say about a loved one who passes away that they became an angel. Um, no, that's not what happens. And the reason that's good news is we actually will be in a position in the resurrection to judge angels. We will be like angels, and I'm going to try and summarize what I understand Jesus meaning from both the rest of the scriptures and from this one. Our wills will be purified. Your affections and your desires will be purified by the presence of God and by the removal of sickness and sin and death, which is exciting. We sang about it a little bit earlier. Our hearts restored feasting. Jesus is speaking about that as a, as a way of answering and correcting the Sadducees. He's also making a little bit of a dig because Sadducees didn't believe in angels either. So he's taking this opportunity to doubly correct them. There are angels. And similarly to other aspects of the spiritual realm, we don't need to put angels on the he uh, head of every pin, but they do exist. And they are doing the Lord's work and the Old Testament would lead us to a, a glorious tension where sometimes it'll say the Lord and sometimes it'll say the messenger of the Lord. And we'll understand more about that when we're with him. Jesus takes this hypothetical, exaggerated question, takes it as, a, as an opportunity to teach us that we will be in his presence. Those who give allegiance to Jesus will be eventually in his presence. His presence will be uh, tangible. So this is, they're skipping over heaven, which is very important, but in this particular interchange, Jesus is talking about the new heavens and the new earth, and our wills will be purified. Our desires will be altogether good because that's what happens when you're in the presence of God, 
and the blood of Christ has atoned for you. Our questions are good, and they're all different. But in his questions, we find life and hope and help and encouragement. I'm so glad that you have questions. And in interacting with his text, with the questions people asked him and the questions he asked people, on Easter Sunday, we're going to switch, and we're going to start looking at the questions Jesus, in his resurrected state, asked his followers. Your questions matter, and they're good, but in his questions and in the text that he left to us, which is sufficient for all of life, we find hope and peace and better answers. Your questions are good. His questions and answers are that much more profound than ours. They asked him a complex question, and he answered, and he told them to expand their thinking talks about God as the God of the living and not the dead. He quotes Exodus, which is one of their books. It's kind of an olive branch to them to interact with him about the other books of the Old Testament. But he's pushing them on their imagination. And I think the reason is when we fixate on our questions, whether those are about people that don't hear the gospel or the interaction of science and faith or the things we don't know about whatever, when we fixate on those questions what we miss is the everyday beauty we receive from the gospel of Jesus. My favorite thing about the gospel is not that we're loved, though that's important, and now I'm wondering, is it, am I allowed to have a favorite thing about the gospel? Am I just supposed to love all of it? Oh well, I've already started the analogy. My favorite thing about the gospel of Jesus is not that we're loved, though that's sweet good news. My favorite thing about the gospel is not that we're a mess, and need Jesus to rescue us from that mess, though that's very, very important and kind of a relief. Like, don't we feel like a mess sometimes? My favorite part is that the Holy Spirit calls us into participation with him in the kingdom right now. My favorite part of the gospel is that you have a role as a lover of God and neighbor where you find yourself. And when we overly fixate on theoretical questions, especially about the afterlife or things that the Bible wasn't clear on, it's good to ask those questions. It's good to wrestle with them. But when we overly fixate on them, we miss that God is your God today. And he has help and hope and peace and life for you and for me today. Ask your questions. Drill down. Study. But what's more important than the questions you have, your questions are important, but what's more important are what the sufficient scriptures have to teach you about God and what he says about himself and what he says about you and what he says about your neighbors. This is why I have books in my office. It's not just because I have purchased probably too many books in my life. It's not just because I love books, though that's also true. If you want to study, study. There are books written on the most obscure questions you can imagine, even you, with spectacular imaginations. But what's more important than studying those are studying the scriptures. And I know you're busy. Even if you're retired, you still have to do work so that you can eat and live indoors, right? You have to manage things so that you can continue to eat. So, like, there's a chunk of your time taken up with that. You need diversion, too. You know that TV show that you love? It's good. It's good to take a break from the world for a certain amount of time, right? We just finished a TV show that I loved, and it feels like a piece of me, like, died, you know? The show's over. It's not coming back. And it was like, ah. Oh. 
Diversion's important. You need to work. You need diversion. We need to spend time in prayer, remembering that God hears us. We need to spend time having fun, learning to actually rest, worship and prayer. You have to eat. And, so, and this is my way of acknowledging that you don't have infinite amount of time to study the scriptures. But you do need to study them. What God says about himself and what he says about your neighbors and what he says about you. They asked Jesus a complex question and he answered them and he told them to expand their thinking and he told them they were wrong. Quite wrong. The reason he quotes Exodus, and this is the, the scene where God reveals his personal name to Moses at the very beginning, or yes, to Moses, whew, at the very beginning of Exodus, is to help them see that their overly theoretical question is blocking them from real life that day. God is the God of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth and God today in this moment in our lives. He's trying to bridge them from the Torah to the rest of the Old Testament. If you're interested in studying the resurrection, my favorite chapter on it is Isaiah chapter 60. It's mind-blowing to be in the new heavens and the new earth. And Isaiah 60 is is challenging. I've had to read it several times to actually understand what God was talking about through Isaiah to the Israelites and then to the followers of Jesus and to us. It's beautiful. And I say that partly because Jesus is is attempting to draw the Sadducees to a more full, to either to faith or to a more full faith, but also because I know there are parts of the scriptures that you love. And I know there are parts of the scriptures that are more challenging for you to enjoy. For me, Ezekiel feels like the one that got away, you know? I went through seminary, and I've read it, and if you asked me to summarize it, I would be like, ah, can I have like 20 minutes? And then I'd only read like a third of it because it's one of those long ones, you know? And what I'm getting at is the whole counsel of God is for you to understand him and yourself and your neighbors, which is why we open the text, which is why we utilize the text for our call to worship. It's why we utilize the text for confession and for prayer and for the sermon. And we have Bible studies to learn what God says about himself. Not only do they not understand the scriptures, they don't understand the power of God according to Jesus. They don't know that they can have peace with the God of the universe right then. They don't know that Christianity will guide them into restoration of relationships. Or we learn that we receive forgiveness and go out into the world inevitably able to forgive others. They don't know that their work matters. They were gifted and skilled and given intelligence just like you for a purpose, and it is a good purpose. They didn't know the power of God, and then Jesus says, you're quite wrong. Rhetorically speaking, that's Jesus waving his arms and saying, don't let your theoretical questions get in the way of receiving life right now. Receiving peace right now. Receiving hope that will never let you go right now. God is the God of the living. Would you pray with me?
Father in heaven, would you nudge us to ask our questions and to study, to do so in community and to do so with the best resources? And then would you nudge us more profoundly to study your word, the questions men and women asked you, the questions you asked them, the texts that tell us about life and life to the full. Holy Spirit, as we receive your nourishment, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, would you draw near to us in ways we can sense and understand? Would you, in fact, give peace not only to our hearts, but to our senses and to our minds, to our anxieties about our past and about our future and about our today? Holy Spirit, we long to be as you described, like angels. And in the meantime, we need your help, and so we are asking for it. You have intervened in the life of Christ. And we long to receive that new life and for our kingdoms to be like yours. Amen.